Listener Production. For young people, the housing market has become an absolute nightmare. You just sit there for years trying to save your deposit whilst house prices just go crazy. It's pretty grim, isn't it, Katrina? Yeah, so I lived in Sydney for many years before I moved to Brisbane, just couldn't afford to buy in in places that I actually wanted to live. And I didn't actually buy my first home until I came to what was then a cheaper property market in Brisbane. It's gone up a lot now, though. Yeah, well, I bought my first place in my 30s and it sort of fits with the broader stats that it's taking people 12 years on average to save up enough money for a deposit on a house. And for each year that you're saving up, the prices can be running away from you. I guess, though, there are people who are thinking that surely there must be a better way. Uh, What if the federal government, for example, helped you out by stumping up 30% of your loan? It would mean they would also own 30% of your property, but you would only have to provide a deposit of 5% and your repayments would only have to cover off 70% of the total cost of your mortgage. So that would make it a lot more affordable. Yeah, it's a good idea. It's the idea we'll be exploring in this briefing. There are state programs in Victoria, SA and WA that are similar, these shared equity schemes. But today's guest, an economist called Brendan Coates, says that we need a national solution. Younger people don't need the bank of mum and dad to get the deposit together. And older Australians can use the scheme to know that they don't have such a large mortgage they've got to pay off by the time they retire. So how to buy your first home sooner with less stress? Who doesn't want that? That is today's briefing. It's Thursday, the 24th of February. First, here are today's headlines. Ukraine has called up their 46,000 reservists as the country braces for a full-scale Russian attack. The government approved a draft law allowing Ukrainians to carry firearms and act in self-defence. It comes as the country declares a state of emergency after Russia sent so-called peacekeeping forces into Donetsk and Luhansk. These are the regions the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has recognised as independent countries. And despite that move, Joe Biden has made it clear US troops will not be going into Ukraine. Let me be clear. These are totally defensive moves on our part. We have no intention of fighting Russia. We want to send an unmistakable message, though, that the United States, together with our allies, will defend every inch of NATO territory. So it's interesting he made that distinction there because the Ukraine is not part of NATO. And Donald Trump has weighed in, coming out in support of Putin's actions. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. Wow, not a very helpful contribution from Donald Trump. I think it's a relief he's not able to live tweet the whole thing. (laughs) What's a very interesting statement from Joe Biden, though, being really clear that they're not going to send in troops, that it's going to be sanctions only at this point, which I imagine won't be deterring Vladimir Putin too much. Wet, wild weather continues today on the East Coast. More than 400 millimetres fell in some parts of southeast Queensland yesterday, leading to flash flooding. The SES were called out to a number of swift water rescues. On the order of 30 were undertaken. They included people and vehicles stranded in floodwaters. And uh, there were also, to date, approaching 250 SES support operations. That's the Queensland SES State Coordinator, James Haig. There, sadly, a 63-year-old woman died after her vehicle was submerged in floodwaters on the Sunshine Coast yesterday. 
a train was also derailed two hours north of Brisbane due to drenched tracks. And in Sydney, the cleanup continues. The city copped the worst of the weather on Tuesday. Sydney actually had its wettest summer in 30 years. I know, Tom, you've been mm. crying about how sad the summer has been, uh, receiving more than 500 millimetres of rain, which is the most since 1991-92. Well, there's still four days to go and it's still bucketing down. Who knows where it might get to? There are flash flooding concerns in parts of northern New South Wales today, uh, as well as southeast Queensland, so still more rain to come. Hundreds of tradies across the country were told to down tools and leave sites yesterday with construction firm ProBuild on the brink of collapse. We're lucky we got all our stuff down, all our tools and all our, all our products. But there's still people up there trying to get the stuff down. That's a worker speaking to Nine. So this company has over 500 employees. Um, there's thousands of subcontractors and over $5 billion worth of construction projects underway. And it's believed that a squeeze on materials and labour and the pandemic environment that prevented new projects from starting are all factors behind the firm's collapse. ProBuild is the company that built the Melbourne Convention Centre, the new Glass Wave Ribbon Hotel on Sydney's Darling Harbour. So some pretty big projects mm. under their belt and you've got to feel for all those subbies and other people who are owed money that maybe they might not see. And there's been another interesting day of evidence in the Ben Roberts Smith defamation case. A private investigator has told the federal court he severed ties with Robert Smith after allegedly being used to send threats to another elite soldier. So if you're following along with this one, this is all part of a defamation action taken by Ben Robert Smith, who is suing three nine newspapers over a series of articles they published back in 2018, where they accused him of unlawful killings in Afghanistan, bullying of colleagues and domestic violence. And Robert Smith has denied those allegations, while the publisher Nine is attempting to establish a truth defence. So they called John McLeod, this private investigator, to the stand yesterday and he testified that he met Robert Smith at a Bunnings store in 2018 where he handed him several sealed envelopes and scraps of paper with names on them. McLeod said he posted the letters on Robert Smith's behalf and was then told by the soldier about media articles reporting elite soldiers receiving threatening letters. And McLeod told the court Robert Smith said they're not effing threats, it was just a touch-up. That hearing will continue. And tennis has a new number one brat. And brat is definitely the right word. You should see <laughs> this footage. Yeah. It is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much what you'd call violence, I think. It's world number three, Alexander Zverev, who's been kicked out of the ATP 500 tournament in Acapulco, Mexico, for unsportsmanlike conduct, um, which is <laughs> understatement of the year. So right after his doubles match, which he lost... He comes off the court and starts whacking his racket against the umpire's chair, almost hitting the umpire's feet and legs. And after he does that three times, he gets up and then says the umpire has destroyed the whole effing match. You can pretty much hear the whole thing. Listen to this. (laughs) 
So poor umpire had to move his feet out of mm. the way because he was going to get whacked. Zverev was definitely not holding anything back there. Zverev has since apologised on his Instagram, saying his outburst was wrong and unacceptable. He's disappointed in himself and it's going to take a few days to reflect on his actions. It should be worth noting, Tom, that Zverev's ex-girlfriend uh, levelled domestic violence allegations against him a couple of years ago. And I think it's very clear that he does need to work on his anger management issues. Well, he makes Kyrgios's worst antics seem like child's play. All right, that's it for the headlines. Coming up, how to buy your first home a whole lot sooner. All right, let's get into our briefing on how to buy your first home sooner with less stress. This is an idea from Brendan Coates. He's the Economic Policy Program Director at the Grattan Institute. So their job is to research our problems and find solutions and suggest them to our politicians. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get to your solution, tell us more about the problem. Are there one or two key numbers that demonstrate how much harder it is for us to get into our first home compared to our parents 30 or 40 years ago? 30, 40 years ago, Australians of all incomes and all ages had a pretty good chance of owning your own home. You didn't see any real pattern. But what's happened in the last few years is we've seen home ownership crash amongst the poorest 40% of Australians. So amongst younger Australians of low incomes, it's halved from 57% 40 years ago to 28% today. So that is a huge change. And that is starting to flow through into lower rates of home ownership amongst older Australians on low incomes. So we've even seen home ownership amongst older Australians, those say 45 to 54, fall from 71% to 55% amongst those on low incomes. People who are in that situation, if they don't buy by the time they're about 40, 45, then they're unlikely to buy, which means they're probably going to end up renting in retirement. And what about how long it's taking people to save for a deposit now compared to our parents' generation? Well, because house prices are so much higher relative to incomes, you know, eight, nine, ten times average income in Sydney and Melbourne when they used to be two to three times. Wow. It's now taking people up to 12 years for the average person to save a 20% deposit for the average home when it used to be half that. All right. So to your solution now, tell us how you came up with this and why this national scheme that you're proposing where the government ships in a quarter of the money and co-owns a quarter of the property, why you think that this is the solution? Well, there's two big reasons people aren't buying houses. The first is the deposit hurdle, which we've talked about, is really, really big for younger people. For older people, they often have the deposit, but they're not going to be in the workforce for 30 years in order to pay down that mortgage by the time they retire. The idea is the government is basically a co-investor in the house. So instead of you having to borrow or use a deposit to buy 100% of the house, the government will come in and offer a 30% equity stake. They will own 30% of the house in exchange for taking 30% of any capital gains or losses when the house is eventually sold down the track. And that way, the government doesn't necessarily lose money. It can potentially make money on the scheme in the long run. Younger people don't need the bank of mum and dad to get the deposit together. And older Australians can use the scheme to know that they don't have such a large mortgage they've got to pay off by the time they retire, even if they then have to use a bit of their super to get there. So of that 30% the government owns, do you have to pay the repayments on that or does the government pay? Because you're not borrowing the money, no one has to make repayments. So sort of the, the quid pro quo is the government takes the 30% equity stake, it gets any capital gains. 
it's not charging you rent or interest on its mm. stake, but you have to pay all the upfront costs. So you pay any stamp duty that's due. You pay any conveyancing uh, costs of, of buying the house. You pay the insurance. You pay for any maintenance. You're getting this sort of rental discount from the government on what it owns, but you have to wear some of the costs that come with that instead. So it's great that you've got mortgage repayments that are potentially 20 or 30% lower. What about how long it would take you to get your deposit together before you were saying we're now at an average of 12 years, which is a hectic amount of time when prices are running away from you? How long do you think with your scheme it would take you to save a deposit on average? Well, it'd probably take about three years. Although for a lot of these people, they probably would never otherwise be able to get that deposit together. They'd never be able to save 20% quickly enough because house prices would get away for them. So for a lot of people, it would be the difference between buying a house and not buying one at all. Talk us through what schemes are out there at the moment in Australia that are similar to this, because some states do have this arrangement in play already. That's right. So there's been long-running schemes in WA with the key start and in South Australia. Those schemes tend to involve, you've got to have a relatively low income, similar to what we're proposing. So that you can only qualify for the scheme we propose if you've got an income as a single of less than 60000 that covers about half of Australians of working age or 90000 as a couple, which covers about 25% of couples. The Key Start scheme in WA has essentially the same income thresholds. I think it's seventy and 90000 South Australia is similar. The Victorians have just introduced a potentially larger scheme, the, the Home Buyer Fund, where you can qualify if you've got an income of 125000 as a single or 200000 as a couple. That scheme looks probably too generous to me. Because the cohort you're really worried about are people who will not otherwise be able to afford a home. The reason we're suggesting a federal scheme here is because the government is putting capital on the table. It's giving you 30% of the house and potentially locking that away for a long time. The federal government has lower borrowing costs in the states. It's probably a better place to create a long-term, large-scale scheme that can actually help those that really do need that support. It's also going to be on the hook for any increase in rent assistance, which is the payment given to people in retirement if they're on the pension, if they're a renter, if people don't get into home ownership. So the federal government's going to be held accountable for falling rates of home ownership anyway. So it should step up, offer the support that's needed, and it's probably best place to do so. So what are the potential downsides to this plan? Could it inflate the housing market even further than it is already? The concern with these, anything you do that adds to purchasing power, it adds to demand for, for buyers, is that you raise prices. And we have seen that with things like first-time buyers grants. That's why you target the scheme pretty narrowly at those on relatively lower incomes. We'd also suggest starting off by capping the scheme at 5,000 places a year just to get it up and running to see how it works and evaluate it before you expand it further. But even if you had 10,000 of these loans a year, and the average person was buying a house worth $500,000, you're going to add $5 billion a year to demand in a housing market that's worth $9 trillion. It's less than 1%. It's a tiny share of the market. And so the impact on prices I'd expect here would be really small. And frankly, if you don't offer this kind of help to this cohort, you're basically saying, well, they shouldn't be able to buy a house in Australia today, which is problematic given so many of our systems, the way our pension works, favours homeowners over renters. So you're condemning a lot of people to a risk of poverty in retirement. i got to say, I think this is a great idea. I can't see much downside at all. As you point out, it's, it's not going to push up house prices when it's such a small part of the market. The government gets the debt at such a cheap price and house prices will go up eventually. So the government actually makes money 
on this and helps people have lower mortgage repayments and potentially drops the saving time on a deposit by 75%. So it seems like a pretty good idea. And I get your point. If the federal government do it, it's consistent. They get the debt at a cheaper price. And they're also the ones picking up the tab if we don't solve this problem. So what do you make of what the federal government's doing so far? One of their schemes is the first home loan deposit scheme where they guarantee three quarters of your deposit. So you only have to put up 5%, but then you won't have to pay lenders mortgage insurance because of that guarantee. Do you like that idea? And what else are they doing? And why is it not enough? I actually think that that scheme is not a bad idea. I think it's just the income thresholds are too high. You know, you can use that scheme and take upwards $200,000 of income, uh, which means that it's much broader than it needs to be. But, you know, that is certainly dealing with the deposit hurdle for younger Australians. There are some younger Australians, though, that are they're risk adverse. Like that's the issue is that they're worried about the size of the mortgage. They don't want to take on a 95% mortgage. What happens if they lose their job? Mm. What happens if property prices fall? And so particularly people who don't have that safety net of the bank of mum and dad, they're going to be more risk adverse. And that's why this scheme in particular allows younger people to get into the housing market with less risk. But particularly, I think the big difference with this one is it would also right the wrongs of people who have missed out on home ownership because if they've got a small amount of money, even from a separation, you know, you've separated from your partner, mm. you've got enough for a deposit, you can use this scheme to get in, whereas the existing federal schemes will not help you. Have you had any response yet? Have you floated this idea at any level yet? Uh, we talked to both sides of politics at a federal level, and I'm hopeful that someone will take it up heading into the election. You know, we've seen house prices rise more than 20% nationally in the last year. Like housing is going to be a hot button issue going into the election. And both sides are going to need something to point to to show that they're going to help. And this would be definitely something I hope that they pick up this election campaign. There is, I guess, one big point to make that could be seen as a criticism that this would add a huge amount of debt potentially to the government's balance sheet if they're taking this big stake in housing right around the country. That's right. So one of the things that this does is it means the government is more exposed to house prices and it is borrowing in order to take these equity stakes. But the size of, of that risk is pretty small. We think if 10,000 of these loans are taken up a year, then by 2030, you'd have the government borrowing $12 billion, which sounds like a lot, but it's only 0.4% of GDP. By comparison, the government has debt at the moment of 40% of GDP Mm. to finance these shared equity stakes. Now, we know that the scheme in WA, which has been running for two decades, has been a budget positive for the WA government. That's included running through the property price downturn they saw after the mining boom a few years ago. Because people don't tend to sell their house when they're in negative equity. They don't want to sell and make a loss. They will tend to hold on until prices recover. And certainly in the long term, you'd expect it would be a money spinner for the government because as long as property prices rise faster than the debt interest rate the government's paying on the debt, then the government will be ahead in the long term. And that's certainly been the case historically. It's a long-term endeavor. Like people are going to be holding on to these equity stakes for a long time. And I think most people would expect that house prices will rise probably in line with wages in the long term, even if they fall a little bit with interest rates fall. And, you know, it's no different to the fact that 70% of Australians are exposed to the housing market because they're unoccupied. They would face the same challenge the government would face. The extra debt the government's taking on is very small in the context of the whole federal budget. Well, then they can feel our pain as well when things get tough and make the right decisions. (laughs) 
That was Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute. Clearly, I'm thinking that's a fairly good idea. What about you, Katrina? Yeah, it sounds good on paper. I just don't know which side of government would go for it because it's such a it's a touchy-feely idea and also you've got to wonder what's in it for them given that it's a long-term solution. Our electoral cycles are so short now and the wins need to be short-term as a result. I just wonder whether anyone would actually go for this. Well, yeah, the, the politics is a good point. You know, I was just sort of suggesting to Brendan maybe Labor would pick this up as a sort of a, a wedge to the federal government on getting first home buyers into housing. But then you think, well, they would just get smashed for increasing government debt. I can totally mm. imagine the coalition. There you go, Labor again, you know, <laughs> spending your taxes and, you know, blowing out the government's balance sheet. So politically, it would be tricky. But housing affordability is front of mind for so many young yeah. people who are politically disaffected. So perhaps this would be the issue that would get them to vote. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to speak to Aussie tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks. Listener.